Welcome to Rocking Our Prize. I'm delighted to welcome MIT professor Yashen Huang to discuss his new book, The Rise and Fall of the East. Welcome. Thank you, Alice. Very happy to be on your podcast. Thank you. Okay. So you open the book with a fascinating puzzle. Why is the CCP so resilient? Tell me about that surprise, please. Well, it is a surprise for one thing because many people have predicted otherwise, right? People going way back to Karl Marx, he was predicting about imperial China, not about CCP, but there are many others who have predicted the demise of the CCP. And nowadays there are also people making the same prediction. And so that's one reason, but the CCP has, has persisted, has not cooperated. The other reason is that if you look at the history of the PRC, uh, the CCP during the PRC period, there have been disasters one after the other. The last 40 years, they have done better, but prior to that, it was pretty <laughs> disastrous. And in other regimes, uh, they collapsed because of that, um, and, and the CCP has not, right? So in the last 40 years, there have also been many, many policy hubris and reversing the reforms, and, you know, the CCP seemed not to be bothered by it, right? The third reason is that and this is going back to the social science theory about modernization, economic modernization and political modernization, right? The whole premise of the engagement policy on the part of the West was to engage China economically, and then China will change and evolve politically. That obviously didn't happen, at least has not yet happened. So these three things really, I believe, are anomalies, probably, and are the things that we should really, should give us room and, 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 uh, and puzzles to, to think about. Okay, one, th one fact that really struck out to me is that I was surprised to learn that 80% of respondents in China approve of the social credit system. So many of these institutions, it's not just that they persist or they're coerced, but people think they're a good idea. Yeah, so, so, so that's right. So factually speaking, that is interesting and puzzling. But if you think about it, um, the autocracy, autocratic system, not just in China, but elsewhere, does not have trust, right? And people are desperate to look for a solution to that trust problem. You know, some people may think that they should change the system, but that's not how most people think about how to solve that problem. So they view technology as a solution to the problem. And the Chinese state is also very clever in framing the technology in a solution-based um, way, right? So people believe, oh, if you can monitor everybody's behavior and if you can sort of uh, discipline them on the basis of their credit history, that's going to solve a trust problem. It's not solving the trust problem by creating trust. I mean, you're creating more distrust. It is really solving the trust problem by policing, right? I would argue that's probably not the best way to go, but I can also understand why people think about it that way. Right, so I want, to, I want to give you two possible explanations for why the CCP is so resilient, and I want you to tell me why they're wrong. So one might say it's just performance legitimacy. You know, there's low crime, there's high growth. Why isn't it just that China has done incredibly well compared to how it was 30, 40 years ago? Yeah, so... so so one thing I think is problematic with that is if you look at the history of P CCP as a whole during the PRC period, uh, there definitely have been, you know, fantastic economic performances. There have also been fantastic economic failures, 
right? So essentially, CCP survived both the disasters as well as the successes. On either side, you can make an argument in terms of the legitimacy issue.、Um, on the failure side, you say, "Oh, they lose the legitimacy," but clearly they didn't. At least they survived the lack of the legitimacy. On the success side, you can make a modernization argument that they should fail, right? Because middle class,、uh, globalization, entrepreneurship. Well, they they didn't, right? So I, I, they they should lose legitimacy either because they have failed or because they have succeeded, but that's not what we see. Okay. Right. Okay. Here's another possible explanation that there's just too much author. There's a lot of authoritarianism and fear, and people. And if activists are scared to protest, then they self censor, and other people become despondent because they never see any kind of resistance. Yeah. So people just keep their heads down and they get on with it. So、deal. I I don't disagree with that,、um, but 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 I think we should be more granular and nuanced in making exactly the same observation that you have made. I think the fear is definitely there, but I don't think it's just the fear of the police. It is not just the fear of the soldiers. I think the fear is psychological, right? So. If I, if I think, I rise up, and I'll be the only one who rises up. I have much more to fear than the situation in which I know or can predict with some confidence that Alice is going to join me, right?、Absolutely. And Michael is going to join me, or you know, a lot of people are going to join me, right? So. Essentially, the fear-reducing effect of collective action is not there, so I think that's the more subtle way of making that observation, and that's the observation I made in my book. One of the most successful things with the Chinese political culture, and this is going way beyond CCP, is to demolish collective action. Right, so every time I rise up, I rise up as a sole individual, and I'm always going to be the weaker part to that equation, right? Because the state is very, very powerful. Yes, but let me. But I wonder to what extent China is unique here. So, and I, I'm totally with you on the model that if people don't, if people underestimate wider support, then they keep their heads down, and you can even get.、Uh, Preference falsification or pluralistic ignorance—that everyone thinks everyone is going along with it—so you underestimate, you know, wider dissent. But so a couple of months ago, I was in Turkey, and my Iranian friends wanted to protest against the Islamic Republic. So they were organizing several big protests. One was in Istanbul. One was in Ankara. And I was going to this protest with my friends, with my Iranian friends, and Turkish guy said to me, "No, Alice, don't go. It's dangerous." So my Turkish friends had this reservation about going to the protest because they anticipated police brutality and they were worried about it. And indeed, in Ankara, women were actually beaten up at the same protest. So I think in many cultures, whether it's Russia today, whether it's Egypt, all over the world, we see the, this you know fairly resilient Arab autocracies. So you know Russian autocracy is is China different? No, I, I I think so. When we say different, we are sort of Using a binary way of thinking, it is really. It's it's almost like elasticity, right? So, it's really different countries have different degrees of elasticity. The fact is, in Turkey and in Iran and even in Russia, there have been protests, right? But you almost observe very little of it in China. They are protests. I mean, nineteen eighty nine and last year, famously against COVID. But let's remember this: the COVID protests happened after the government essentially putting four hundred million people under zero COVID lockdowns. Right. So relative to that degree of、uh, grievance. You have protests. 
Whereas in other countries, the elasticity is much bigger and much larger, right? So I like to compare、um, the the fate of many Chinese peddlers on the street with the famous peddler in Tunisia, who basically whose death sparked the Arabic Spring, right? So that was the death of one peddler. His assets were confiscated by the municipal official. In China, in the last twenty years, that has happened almost on a daily basis, right? But seldom do you see that level of、uh, protest. So, I I'm not going to say China is like on a different planet. It's just that the extreme、uh, repression and the failure of that extreme repression to elicit similar level of response. I think that's something. There's something Chinese about that. Okay, I'm with you. But let me. Okay, let me say one more thing. Do we observe this kind of tolerance for state interference more widely, more widely, even outside China? So, for example, if we look at Taiwan, even during Taiwan, they had quite punitive policies around、uh, COVID. For example, I think if you know you moved out of your house, the government would get an alert and police would turn up at your、mm-hmm. door. And so I, I I just wonder to what extent this might be a wider cultural phenomenon. So you, you I'm sure you know Thomas Talhelm's theory of rice that、yeah. rice growing was incredibly labor intensive and this motivated coordination. People had to repair irrigation together, and that prompted a culture of cultural alignment and conformity. And so maybe that might be a broader East Asian phenomenon. Yeah, no, I I'm not denying it's a broader East Asian phenomenon, right? Uh, but let's look at the facts. Taiwan evolved to be a democracy. China didn't. South Korea evolved to be a democracy. China didn't. Japan, you know, became a functional democracy. China didn't. Right. So it, it's 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 um uh, um. The, I think the stickiness. Is is there to a degree that merely invoking some sort of broad culture is not is not sufficient, right? It, it may be necessary. Yeah, I'm totally with it. It may be necessary.、Um, you know, by October first this year, China will surpass the longevity of the Soviet communist、uh, period. It will be the longest-lasting communist regime in the world, and one of the five remaining communist regimes in the world. I mean, North Korea. We can explain the country experienced no modernization, isolated bubble, right? China vibrant the <laughs> entrepreneurship IPO on the stock exchange in New York, Hong Kong. You know, just entrepreneurs.、Uh, Students and scholars, it's harder to explain the case of China, right?、Um, so, and, and in terms of the trust, the、uh, I I completely agree with you. In the broader East Asian context, there is、um, <clears throat> there is a a degree of acceptance, automatic acceptance of the government actions, then. Probably it is outside of East Asia, right? So that I agree, right? It's just that China is is sort of a little bit more than that. I'm with you. Okay, so the the main、uh, the main the main contribution of your book is really about the a really neglected aspect of Chinese history, the civil service exams. So can you tell me about these and tell me why they were introduced? Because I found this really fascinating. I absolutely loved it. Well, I can't tell you why it was introduced, <clears throat> and and what is amazing to me is the exam approach to evaluate human capital happened in China so early, right? So in other civilizations. I may be wrong on this because I know China more than other civilizations.、Uh, I don't see it in other civilizations: Roman Empire,、uh, Muslim uh, civilization, India. You you don't see this approach, right? So the competing approach will be, you know, 
battles, right? So that's why Roman uh, emperors, many of them came from military backgrounds. Whereas in China, if you come from military backgrounds, you are basically treated as a second class and third class citizens, right? In India is the religion, and so they they are sort of in um, in Western European countries for centuries it was nobility, right, bloodline. So this way of promoting, evaluating human capital is, I believe, quite uniquely Chinese. So that's that's one, and the other is that this is not a casual institution, right. Something you do on the side, and some something you do one year, but you don't do it for many many other years. It was extremely systematic, right? I talked about anonymization features, the protocol, and the, the entire preparatory system that was built up to facilitate the working of the system, right? And the manpower. For example, I gave uh, the example of.、Uh, Scribes, right? So they didn't want the examiner to recognize the handwriting of the examinee. So each round of the exam, they could hire as many as six hundred scribes to copy the paper, to copy the exam. And I read somewhere that in Spain, at one point, there were only six hundred people in the whole country. Who could read, right? So, so in the Chinese case, for each exam, they hire, you know, six hundred of them. So, it is just a remarkable system, and historians do talk about the exam. They do write about the exam, but they all have a particular approach. Usually, they talk about it as a meritocratic institution. And also, by the way, the. Uh, in Chinese, we call it Kuju system. The civil service exam had a very large following among the Enlightenment、uh, intellectuals in the in the West, right? So wait, before we get、yeah. onto that, before we get onto that, can we? Can I just pick up on the point about you making about the、um, transcribing? Because I think this is so important. <clears throat> Because these were double-blind exams.、Yeah. Number one, you—I even looked on the internet to see pictures of this. You can see pictures of these little booths、yeah. that people take their private exams <laughs> in. So each student is sitting in their little booth, and then their text is copied by someone else. And this was so important. And you argue in your book in that this cultivated. A belief in meritocracy, a belief that anyone, if they memorize these ancient texts, if they really understood their Confucianism, then they could make it. You know, this is the Chinese dream, yeah, yeah. so to speak. Because only if you really believe that you've got a chance will you massively invest in decades. And you talk about people retaking the test, so people might be investing decades in this because they think this is their lucky ticket. You know, if you know your Confucianism really, really well. Then you've got an absolutely good shot of it. Whereas if people believe the system was corrupt, yeah, why yeah. would they bother? So it's only if people believe in the meritocratic system that you that you then have this massive, massive investment of all the most ambitious or the cleverest men in China funneling all their energy into Confucianism. And I just find that fascinating—the intersection between a belief in a meritocracy and people channeling. And you also point out that this was the this was the best route of social mobility. You know, it's far. It's is the best way to、yeah. get ahead. Learn your Confucianism. Yeah. So、uh, you're absolutely right about about that aspect of the exam, the legitimacy aspect of the exam. Only when you have that level of legitimacy, can you motivate millions and millions of the best talents to do this. Right,、uh, it was offered three years uh, uh, apart. Every round of the exam had millions of the participants. So the double blind, the transcription, the protocol. You can think about them as investments in the legitimacy of the exam, right? And that legitimacy elicited particip- broad-based participation. Also, your observation about the small exam booth is very important. You are stuck there for three days, right? And by the way, you perform both your intellectual and biological functions there, and you cannot collaborate with. Other people because that will be cheating, right? So think about that. 
an empowered individualism, but it got rid of individual agency, right? Because I don't collaborate with you, I don't collaborate with my friends, but I believe in myself, right? So that I use I use that to explain why in China today you actually have a lot of individualism, a lot of casual visitors to China from America would observe, oh, Chinese are just like Americans. They are very individualistic. On one level, I agree. On the other level, I don't agree, right? So U.S. is also known for bowling alleys, you know, church, New England and town meetings. In China, we have none of that, right? So those are the collective action aspects of American culture. And Steve Jobs and Silicon Valley, that's the individualistic aspect of the Chinese, uh, of American culture. China has one of those, but not, not both. And I trace that to the exam system. This belief in yourself, in hard work. In, uh, so this is where I disagree with Max Weber, who made the famous observation that Confucianism was not conducive to economic growth. That's clearly not true, right? <laughs> Confucianism was associated, uh, maybe not in a causal way, was associated, at least Confucianism didn't, uh, didn't mind economic growth, right? Look at Japan, look at Taiwan, and look at China today. What he failed to understand is that Confucianism also incubated hardworking work ethics, right? Just as you said, these individuals spent decades preparing for exam. In our data set, we have one individual who finally made it at the age of, was it 59 or 69? I can't quite remember. And, and then he died you know, five years after he obtained the degree. So it just, it just remarkable effort, remarkable investment. And I made the other observation that for the regime, they reap tremendous benefit, right? For one thing, they get the best of the talents. For the other, I occupy your time, right? So you're not thinking of, you know, forming a political party, you're not thinking about uh, uh, guerrilla warfare, you're not thinking about plotting against the regime, right? It, it, it worked out for the regime uh, tremendously. Um, let, me, let me, I wanted to add a point that maybe actually Confucianism was good for growth because I think one distinguishing feature of East Asia's economic growth is that there was a very high level of human capital at a very low level of wages. And that was common across all East Asian countries. The Chinese, Korean, Japanese workers were very, very educated, but they didn't, but they, those workers didn't need to be paid so much. And that could be part of their industrializing success. You know, part of the reasons why firms were so successful and productive is you had this skilled workforce at the low wage. And maybe that's because parents had this cultural preference for education. You know, in, in Korea, they call it education fever. And that's yeah. why they had very, very high rates of education. And I wonder if, if that actually fed into well, the economic growth so, story. So, I mean, but for one thing, low wage is a universal phenomenon among developing countries, right? So yes. it has to be low wage plus, right? Plus something else. Mm. There, I, I think it's the education, it's the human capital that matters rather than Confucianism per se, right? So it, it yes, could be yes, another sure. content, but then administered in the same way as the Koji system, you can still have this human capital effect, right? So I, I think many China cultural, um, cultural scholars you know, the, the whole idea Asian value, right? Going back to the 1990s, the school of the thought is Confucianism substantively is good for economic growth. I, I'm not quite sure. And I, I think in terms of format, yes, right? So this, this kind of work ethics, um, this um, uh, level of recognition of numbers and memory, all these things that come with literacy, that is unambiguously good for economic growth, right? Plus the low wage, right? Whether or not 
feel our piety, piety you know. Um, yeah, oh so, yeah, sure, so, sure. But you might you might distinguish between different phases of growth. I wonder. So, for example, if if it's the case that the institution of the Keiju exam centered, you know, parents' mind that we've got to educate our children. Education is the pathway to upward mobility. That could have nurtured a culture of oh, education, yeah. and that could help explain why you had very high education at low wages today. Why one of the reasons Vietnam is doing so well is it's got very, very high PISA scores, for example. And so I wonder at for example, in countries undergoing manufacturing, for example, having a cheap literate labor force is excellent and that's good for growth. But it's possible that as you move into more into structural transformation and you then need greater creativity, then maybe some of the cultural features involved in rote learning and memorization might hold you back. So I wonder if some of the culture might be good at different stages of growth. Yeah, so so I, 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 think, I think what is what is understood is that during the first phase of economic growth, discipline is important. So you, you can make a substantive argument about Confucianism in the sense that it teaches uh, discipline. But I don't know if it is because of the format. Suppose, let's play the thought experiment. It is the Shakespeare, right? Reading classics of Shakespeare rather than classics of the Confucianism, but exactly the same format. I think you will achieve a similar effect, right? And so, I, I you know, the, the second stage, yes, that's more complicated once you have achieved certain level of economic growth. But when you have achieved a higher level of GDP per capita, um, then your values change automatically, right? So I think, right, because okay. because market competition, here, th- because of those things, right? Yes. So when you compare Confucianism and Shakespeare, I think this is a, an amazing point that you make in your boy- book, that it's not about Confucianism per se. It's that the fact that the Confucian texts, memorizing those texts was the pathway to yeah. mobility. So whatever it was that you had to memorize, whatever was the objective truth handed down that you had to learn, that would have encouraged this rote learning uh, culture. Yeah, so right? yes. So I made the point. It's a hypothesis. It's not... Um, you know, demonstrated empirically. The Confucianism as a curriculum, as an exam curriculum, had a huge advantage over Buddhism and over legalism and other great Chinese cultural traditions in the, in the following sense. It just has a lot of vocabulary. It is a very wordy ideology, right? And I gave some numbers in my in my book about uh, about that. So when you scale the standardized test uh, in the U.S., you know, high school students take SAT. They are tricky verbal questions. They are tricky uh, uh, tricky uh, words. And Confucianism offers tremendous amount of memorization, right? And so it was the best ideology for that purpose on top of all the other things that we talk about. Um, so, so it's kind of winners take all. Once you use one ideology, it's just much more efficient than sort of having different kinds of uh, uh, ideologies. And, and that probably is why the exam used just one ideology and then it made Confucianism more prominent, more dominant as compared with other Chinese ideologies. Can I add a point though? I think that, so I I totally buy your argument that the Keiju examination system incentivized people to learn Confucianism, right? No question. But I think there could also be an element of prestige bias. Like if the if the wealthiest high status people are all Confucianism, are all Confucian or practicing Confucianism, then you know parents wanted their daughters to be married to some upwardly mobile 
guy. So they bound their daughter's feet to signal chastity, to signal that they'd be confined to the inner quarters. So I think you probably have an element of prestige bias working alongside it. You know, once Confucianism is associated with the top, then you get all these other cultural effects, like it being praised in literature by the elites and then other people look to that. Exactly. Oh, absolutely, right? So, yes. I, uh, uh, I think we, we need to make a distinction between origination and propagation, right? So the, the, I, I was trying to talk about why it was adopted as a, yes. as a sole ideology. Once that is in place, every, yes, everybody yes. converges to that, right? And marriage and social status. And, yeah, you're absolutely right. Once, once, but, but the issue is how do we explain that it got to be such a dominant ideology? No, I'm with you. I'm totally with you. There's a very nice paper by Kung and Ma in the journal Development Economics. They show that in counties where there was more Confucianism, yeah, yeah. which they proxy by temples and widow chastity, yeah. then you have fewer rebellions when the crops fail. Yeah, yeah that's right. So, yeah. So you have all these knock-on effects for authoritarianism. Yeah. I'm, I'm totally with you. Now, another thing I love in your book is you talk about, you create an index of the innovativeness and inventiveness in different Chinese dynasties. Can you tell us about that, please? Yeah, so that part of the book, uh, and uh, by the way, uh, we have an ongoing book project just on that. The history of Chinese technology, it is under contract at the Princeton University Press. Uh, we, Congratulations. Yeah, we are about one third way through the book. Um, so we uh, start, started, uh, started in 2014, creating a database on Chinese inventions going back to history. What we did was we digitized the great work done by Joseph Needham, the Cambridge uh, professor, Cambridge historian, who in the 1920s and 1930s went to China. He, got, he was a biochemist by training, but he was fascinated by what he saw in China. And he collected information on Chinese technologies and Chinese inventions. And he asked a question that has been debated by historians, by scholars for decades. The question is why China initially led in technology, but China didn't produce its own industrial revolution, right? Or something to that effect. Yes. And we, he and his colleagues, his students compiled 27 volumes of Chinese inventions and the Chinese Academy of Natural uh, History also compiled their own volumes on Chinese inventions. We used those volumes as our source material and digitized the unique inventions mentioned in those volumes. And we created a database of over 10,000 Chinese inventions going back to uh, 5th century BCE all the way to the 19th century, the, the end of 19th century. By comparison, the largest database on Chinese inventions before our database has some, something like 600 observations, right? So we are really making a big uh, contribution uh, there. And it's really, <laughs> this is where data are really important the, the, this question of Needham observation, Needham question, it's called Needham question, has been debated by historians, including by Needham himself. Most people believe China began to decline around like 16th century, 17th century. It's not because they actually look at the materials they collected. I think most of them, and because Joseph Needham posed the question that way, which is China compared with the West. So essentially, West began to take off in the 16th and 17th century, right? Industrial revolution and scientific revolution. So then people <laughs> argue that China began to decline in 16th and 17th century without really looking at empirics. What we have found is that China actually began to decline much earlier, around 6th century, 
you know, a thousand years uh, prior to the common uh, timing that historians have established. And what happened in the sixth century? Uh, I think you know, people on this podcast will probably not be surprised. In sixth century, they established the civil service examination system, right? And the autocracy began to become institutionalized. Ideological conformity, ideological dominance gained upper hand. Many people forget or don't know that China at one point had vibrant, multicultural, multi-ideological environment that went away after the Sui Dynasty that was established toward the end of the sixth century, and the Sui Dynasty established the Keqiu. System, right? So that's how. Yeah, this is the thousand schools of thought, yeah. the golden age of philosophy. Yeah, yeah it's amazing. Yeah. So, 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 so there were um, there were two really golden eras of Chinese ideas and Chinese culture and Chinese ideologies, and also politics was not unified. Uh, prior to the Sui Dynasty, there were something like you know almost thirty regimes, either uh, coexistence. Uh, coexisting with each other or replacing each other, right? So it was a almost like in my book I call it uh, Europe before Europe.、Uh, China had its European moment, and and that was all gone, basically、uh, gradually after the sixth century, and really became、uh, consolidated after the Song Dynasty, and then we're talking about a very narrow. Version of Confucianism, repression of women,、um, uh, literary inquisitions, censorship—all、uh, that gained the upper hand. China today is basically the legacy of that China, rather than China.、Before. So, when China was most politically fractured, there was more ideological diversity. What What is your theory about what was going on? Yeah. So, the I think when the politics was more fractured, they tended to court intellectuals rather than molding them and repressing them, and also because there was the mobility of human capital. The creative minds could choose the places that were most beneficial to them, right? So very much like. Did people really travel that much? Yeah. So so. Like in that time of chaos、yeah. and war and you know pretty crappy roads,、yeah. how much can you travel? So so、uh, we know for a fact that not immediately before the Sui Dynasty, before the establishment of the Keqiu system, but during the prior era. It's called the Warring States period. The、yes. intellectuals did travel, including Confucius himself. He traveled from one place to another and and sold his ideas to different uh, uh, rulers.、Um, we are now doing、uh, archival research on the period, and, and that period lasted for three hundred sixty years. So it was a very long period, from basically two、mm-hmm. hundred. Twenty、uh, CE to five hundred eighty CE, right? So that、mm. that period, interestingly, has not attracted attention from scholars that much. People kind of wrote off that period as war torn period, which is correct. And、uh, invasions by the、uh, ethnic tribes in in the north,、um, and and. So there's not a lot of information about that period, especially about the specific individuals、uh, that were known for their creativity. So I I cannot say at this point that there was a lot of human capital mobility during that period. But、mm-hmm. we know during a previous period that had exactly the same setup. There was a lot of mobility of human capital. May I make a suggestion for your next book, or maybe you're able to answer this already? 
Do you know about the geographical distribution of those inventions? Yeah. Like, for example, if we heed the Thomas Telham yeah. theory of rice culture, then we should expect more inventions in the north. Yeah. And I wonder if you can investigate yeah. that in any so, sense. So uh, when we set out in 2014 to digitize the Chinese uh, information on Chinese inventions, we had a very ambitious goal. We wanted to um, digitize information about the inventors, about the geographies, uh, about the the time period, um, and, and many. So one thing we really wanted to find out was whether a inventor was a government official or not, and whether right. whether the inventor invented the the invention in the same place that he was born, right? So then as a way to look at the mobility, none of that information was available. The only information that was available was the type of invention and roughly the time period. Even that is very crude and and very coarse, uh, the, the time period, the dynasty. So in the end, we really just were able to digitize two pieces of information, the invention and the rough, the time period. But this is, um, you know, this is a Needham's volumes. Maybe there are other uh, sources of information we have not looked at. Mm. Um, <laughs> it took us six years to do this. And at one point we had 44 researchers w- working on this project. So I have to think twice before going back uh, again to a project like this. Yeah, so it would be absolutely um, fantastic if we could have that type of information, but we don't. Okay, so let's summarize. So we're saying there was lots of ideological diversity when China was most fragmented, but then we see the adoption of the Keiju examination and upward mobility depends on rote memorization. And this created a culture of confusion. So what do you think are the long run effects of that today? Yeah. Uh, so in my book, I argued that the culture system was a curse, but it was also a blessing, right? It was a curse because it basically um, led to the collapse, or at least partially was a partial factor behind the collapse of Chinese technology. It was a blessing in 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 the sense of the, 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 the early discussion we had, it incubated human capital, it incubated work ethics, combined with the right policies, combined with the right conditions, then the that human capital led to economic growth. Right? But there's a huge lag right, between the incubation of these things and the activation of, of the human capital. Well, you know, you could make an argument for the regime, it worked out politically, it propagated one form of the government, it demolished political competition, it demolished the nobility, right? And basically it forestalled the prospect of democracy in China, both on the side of the ideas and on the side of the institutions, right? So for the regime, it worked out, right? So maybe for the people, it didn't work out. So politically, it was a blessing for the regime. And the long-run effect, I think we still see it in China today. The, the, the biggest, uh, there are two, right? One operated at a society level, the other is operating at a state level. At the state level, CCP has, I believe, a very institutionalized autocracy. It is not personalistic, it is not haphazard and ad hoc. It is quite systematic. Many scholars argue that autocracy in the end is going to end up as a personal fiefdom. Um, You know, China may get there. Um, I think under the current leadership, it is actually moving in that direction. But for a long stretch of time, China has a very institutionalized autocracy. So going back to 
Samuel Huntington's idea about about autocracy. I think it fits with the Huntington's model. So that's a political effect operating at the state level. At the society level, the norms, the values, the automatic deference you gave to the state, to the authority, and the reluctance or even complete absence of collective action, right? All these are shaping the behavior of the citizens, right? So making it so much more difficult for that country to move from the kind of autocratic equilibrium to a, a different equilibrium. And, and that's why I think CCP has survived the modernization effect of economic growth, entrepreneurship, and globalization, right? So I, I think CCP is so, I mean, if you look at the data as a whole, there's no question that political openness uh, is correlated with level of GDP per capita, maybe not so much with economic growth, but at least if you look at one quadrant, you know, high income countries tend to be more democratic, right? So, so China has survived that effect. Uh, it's not, I think, it's not because modernization theory is wrong, because any theory is really about the average uh, outcome, not about the particular outcome. It is just that China has this kind of enormous outside of legacy from autocracy, from Koju, that has um, made the modernization effect weaker than it would be otherwise. But I still believe in that theory. It's just that the country needs to work more on that, on economics, on globalization to achieve a similar effect as compared with other countries. I'm with you. So after reading your book, I thought one one test of this idea might be to look more at South Korea. And you mentioned that South Korea adopted the yeah. their version of the KG yeah. system, the Guageo, I think. It's yeah. I don't know how to pronounce it. And, and just as in China, there was once lots of ideological diversity. You know, they had shamanism. There were the Sila kingdom had three female yeah. rulers, three yeah. queens. So it was very, very diverse. Women inherited land, women own land. Women, there, were, there were far greater female freedoms, but then they adopted these imperial examinations and they instilled Confucianism, and this was the route to glory. And I read that in Korea, a family was only considered a member of the nobility if someone within their family, within four generations, had passed the civil service exam and served mm. the government. And there are all these sayings and stories, just as like you say, like the, this commoner got it, you know, this guy, mm. did you hear about this guy who passed the exam? And they had the uh, crimson certificate, which they would pass down through generations as like their treasured, mm. like the greatest glory and honor to your family. So really this whole ideology that you're honoring your family when you're passing the exam. It was a very, um, anyway, so I thought that was, I thought that was so, that story, that historical story is very similar to what happened in China. But then I think it's fascinating that clearly even with this culture, as you say, that's no barrier to growth. That's no barrier to democratization. You say, you know, just different elasticity. But then what I also find fascinating on many psychological tests and normative surveys, Koreans are still very similar to Chinese. So it's not just that the culture did not impede democratization or growth, it's that even after all that uh, cultural shift, the, you know, the militant labor movement, the very strong feminist Me Too movement in Korea, they still are what Michelle Gelfand calls culturally tight. So there's still this, so I was looking at some fascinating, so in 2016 to 2018, there were lots of Me Too feminist protests in Korea. And I was looking at pictures of this, and what's fascinating is that in all their protests, they are color coordinated. So everyone will have the same placard with the same writing. People might be wearing the same color outfit. So you'll have a sea of people. Everyone is red and everyone has a red placard. Whereas if you look at a feminist protest in London, people are coming up with their own signs. It's a hodgepodge. It's a total mess. So you really see this contrast. So that even though they are protesting, even though there's this resistance, 
there's a very different style of doing it. It's much more about social alignment and conformity. And it's okay. Maybe there's an issue of alignment. You know, maybe an individual might be nervous to protest because they underestimate social change, as you were saying earlier. They underestimate social support. But once everyone is protesting in unity, then people are fine with protest, but they do it in a very aligned, coordinated, choreographed way. And so what I find is that... <clears throat> So what I find, and I, I wonder what you think about this, but ref to me, it suggests that if Koreans can have that very similar culture, but still be rich and democratic, then I wonder whether culture is really the impediment in China. Yeah. So I, I think I think we we need to um, we, we need to be again granular uh, about this yes i i think i can say with some degree of confidence that confucianism is adverse to the origination of market economics and political democracy but that's not the same as saying that it is fundamentally incompatible with yes. market economics and political democracy. Let's look at Korea, right? Um, so Korea democratized under conditions that we didn't observe in China. They work closely with the United States, even during the most autocratic period of that country's history in the 60s and 1970s. U.S. intervened in Korea. Actually, the Republic of Korea's constitution was written by a Harvard political scientist. Um, you know, we can say that's just a piece of paper and all of that. Uh, but it is important that they had a Western democratic format. They had elections and they had parliament. All of that was very constrained by the military dictatorship, for sure, but the format was there, whereas in China, you don't have any of that at all. Yes. And the US intervened in the human rights situations, conversations with South Korea during the military dictatorship, right? South Korea was much more dependent on the US earlier in the 1950s and early 60s in the form of foreign aid, but later on in terms of trade, in terms of military assistance, right? In a, in a way that, that China has never been as intertwined with the West as Korea was, right? So I think this is, you, you need a bigger external force to overcome the same historical yeah, I mean, legacy. Can I, can I put two questions to you? Yeah. And this is only a hypothesis, yeah. and you can correct me if you think I'm wrong. So I, w I have another theory about South Korea. So, uh, in a, so one thing is that although it was a military regime, although it was incredibly authoritarian, authoritarian they did permit churches. Yeah, and yeah. the leadership saw churches yeah. as a bastion against the North. Yeah. And in fact, many yeah. pastors and preachers Correct. from Pyongyang actually came to join yeah. the churches. And I think this was important because this formed a backbone of civil yeah. society yeah. independence down yeah. the peninsula. And we know that although you have the Korean Protestant rights, there was also the Minjung the yeah. uh, liberation yeah. theology. And many of those people in churches actually yeah. supported the protest. So they supported the workers. Yeah. There were lots of Korean uh, students who went to work in factories yeah. for class conscientiousness. They were also involved in the farmers' protest, the democracy protest. So I would stress less the external intervention of the US and more about this indigenous Christianity, not about Christianity per se as an ideology, but rather that you had this independent autonomous space that then fed into a nurtured resistance and organizing and shared letters, etc. just as a space for a No, I, I, I completely agree with you. I, I, I think that here we're trying to sort of come up with some sort of weighting system, right? Which one is more important than the other? I, I think the church uh, is, was absolutely important. 30% um, of the Korean population was uh, Christian, right? And, it, and also they had Buddhism, 
uh, on top of Confucianist. Um, so that ideological space allowed uh, a kind of local organization, local collective actions. Korea in the 1970s had numerous instances of labor strikes, uh, students' uh, protests, um, in a way that you don't see in China today, right? And, and, yeah. and, and, and so that's absolutely yes. So, so that degree of, you know, I can call it westernization without, without any kind of value judgment, but the diversity, initial diversity, was important in political evolution and political development. So this is, this is, this is really a fascinating issue, which is that you probably observe societies and political systems evolve more only when you have some initial openness, right? Whereas the watertight autocracy is much more stable in that sense because they had none of these initial openness. Korea had quite a bit of it, despite their Koju civil service exam tradition. But I think when I say despite, I do believe the Western influence had a role to play there, right? Taiwan, you exactly, uh, you observe exactly the same thing. Japan also had the Koju system, but they stopped it very, very quickly, yes. right? So essentially by the time of Meiji Reformation, Japan was similar to Europe, they had local control, local nobility competing with each other, and they had an emperor that was more of a god rather than someone with a real power. They opened up to Western trade, Western gumbo diplomacy much more easily than China. So I think that's the contrasting condition between China and the rest of East Asia. China never had or at least had, when they had it, it was very brief, that initial openness, right? In the 1980s, they had that initial openness, and then they closed again. Whereas in the rest of East Asia, they had quite more of that. And in part, I would attribute that to, to the influence of the West. Yes. Okay, so can you tell me, what is your prognosis for China now? Yeah. Um, so, so we know from history of China, but also history of other autocracies, stability breaks when you have conflicts among the elites, rather than conflicts between the state and the society. Yes. In terms of the conflicts between state and society, as Chinese economy is slowing down, I do predict more and more of, of that. Street-level conflicts, small-scale demonstrations here and there. But as long as the political elites are able to maintain either the facade or the real unity, uh, I kind of see the system as it is uh, going for a while. But in my book, I do stipulate one condition under which that may break down. And no autocrat is immortal, as far as we know. And the succession issue will come up sooner rather than later, right? Usually it is that issue that breaks up the peace and the consensus among the political elites. And China, under the PR, uh, under uh, CCP, has not handled succession very effectively until they figured out the term limits, which they introduced in the early 1980s. And Xi Jinping demolished that in 2018, essentially reintroducing this source of intra-elite instability uh, uh, that, that was there before they enacted 
the uh, term limits. You know, he's 69 years old and, and you know, who knows uh, when that issue is going to come up. Uh, but my uh, prediction is that that issue is going to come up. When that issue is coming up, then we're going to see more intra-elite conflicts. And that is not, I fear, not going to be very pleasant. Mm-hmm. Combined with okay, low well, economic growth and all of that. Yes, yes. Okay, Professor Huang, let's wrap it up there. Thank you very much. I want to strongly recommend your book. It's really about, I think, the idea that an authoritarian institution gained legitimacy by giving people hope of upward mobility and thereby encouraging cultural change and rote memorization. It's really a fantastic, fantastic book. I strongly recommend it. And thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Alice, for this lovely and really interesting conversation. Thank you so much. And for your recommendation of my book. (laughs) You can pay me later. (laughs) I will do that. (laughs) Thank you.